I'd invite you as I begin to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Chapter 19. In 1947, the first publication of the Bulletin, all right, I'll quote that, the Bulletin magazine was published. Now, you ask, well, why is this relevant? Well, I'm going to tell you why it's relevant. For most of it, for most of us, we know the Bulletin as a place where they are known for one thing. It's called the Doomsday Clock. All right, so if you have never heard of the Doomsday Clock, it's, a, it's for those of you who are, are young, you probably even know how to read a real clock. It's not digital. It has hands. So, and what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a picture, it's a symbol of how close we are to the end of the world. All right, so this, these are atomic scientists in 1947, they came up with the idea and they saw the arms race between the Soviet Union and the United States coming to an ultimate climax of mutual destruction. So they put a time, if we don't stop this particular thing, this is going to happen. And it began with seven minutes to midnight in 1947. Well, most recently, in 2006, the clock was, and the way they've decided how and how far they should move the clock, they decided to, decided to take global warming into what's going on too, because we know that that's a big thing for many people where they think the world is going to end because of fossil fuels and different things, and that is in the equation. So climate change how we humans are going to destroy the world. Well, if you're interested in 2021, metaphorically speaking, we're 100 seconds till midnight. 100 seconds to midnight. Well, in our past two studies, we've witnessed the destruction of Babylon. We've witnessed the Lord using human hands, and the Lord using his own hands, so to speak, destroying the religious Babylon in chapter 17 and economic Babylon in chapter 18. And what we saw was not a chronological event. It was, it was a picture painted for us to understand what must happen and what will happen before God takes possession of the earth. Before God's clock, the only one that matters, strikes midnight. And then, as I said, the chapter 17 focused on the destruction of religious Babylon. Well, religious Babylon is the one world religion at the end of times where all the religions get together. It's almost, it's the coexist bumper stickers dream. They all get together and they worship who knows what they worship and then the, the beast, a.k.a. the Antichrist, with his 10-king alliance, they ride, or this, this uh, religious, religious Babylon, she's called a whore, she rides on the back of the beast until two, three and a half years into the tribulation where they destroy, destroy the religious system. Why? Because the beast is the one who will be worshipped 
He is the one who sets himself up to be God. Jesus called this the abomination of desolation. It's also spoken of in, the chap in, in Daniel. Chapter 18 spoke of the fall and the destruction of commercial Babylon and social, and social Babylon. It's both a city and a system. We have to remember, it's a picture of reality, of what will happen. And when it's destroyed, the city will be the center of all commerce in the world. It will be where the action happens. And I suppose if the doomsday clock is still functioning, chapter 19 shows the clock striking midnight. We're there. It's time. And we'll see the coming of the king of kings. The coming of the king of kings. And I might add the Lord of lords. I've been waiting for this. Again, I said this is the pinnacle of the book of Revelation. And it is a chapter of praise and glorious expectations for all who call Jesus their king. If you're in Revelation chapter 19, I would ask you to look back at chapter, Revelation 18 verse 20 where we read speaking of Babylon's destruction. The voice said, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Please follow along as I read the first five verses of Revelation 19, where we hear heaven respond to this command. And it's as if we hear a hallelujah chorus. For those of you who like trivia, for the next time that you come on a Wednesday night and there's trivia that you have to have a competition or a contest, this is the only place in the New Testament where hallelujah is seen. Four times. Hallelujah is yelled, is screamed, is proclaimed. Notice, Judy, how I'm not saying is saying. Praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord. Well, why here? Why here at this particular thing? Because it's the praise for God's victory over Babylon. Verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 20. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Why? Because he is the salvation. He is the glory. He is the power. If we would look at this in the original languages, each one of these has an article in front of them. This is an attribute of God. These are the attributes of Jesus himself. He is the salvation. There is no salvation 
besides him. He is the glory. God gets every bit of the glory, and he is the power. All of these things belonging to God, and he rightfully deserves praise when he acts in his glorious power to bring his deliverance for his people and his name, and he's bringing deliverance here. Up until this chapter, God has allowed a usurper. He has allowed a usurper to live on the earth to his, and with his minions and those who follow him to even exist. But now the lamb, the lamb who took the scroll from God Almighty, the one sitting on the throne, is coming to earth to do what he promised. I'm sorry if I'm screaming. I'm sorry if I'm excited. I'm a, this is good. And the judgment is warranted. The judgment, it is deserved. The judgment is harsh. We must remember that for seven years, there has been warning after warning after warning to turn to the Lord. 144,000 Jewish evangelists through the earth proclaiming God, turn to God, turn to him, turn to the lamb. An angel declaring aloud from the sky, an angel doing this. Two witnesses who are based in Jerusalem, who the whole world is watching for three and a half years, not allowing it to rain, allowing telling people, repent, repent, repent. And many have turned to Christ. Many have turned to God and believed and were saved. But when they did, they were under a sentence of death. The beast, the leader of that system, that kingdom, and the kingdom itself, they killed those. They were under a sentence of death if they turned to Christ because you could only live, you could only trade if you had the mark of the beast. The world was warned, but now it's too late. Well, heaven declares hallelujah in verse 3 because God's punishment is everlasting. Let that sink in. His people will live with him forever. And the smoke of Babylon goes up forever and ever. No, the city is not going to stay smoking forever, but the judgment will. But that also means the judgment lasts for an eternity. The appearance of the 24 elders and the four living creatures is a reminder that all of chapters 6 through 18 have come from the throne room of God. God is sovereign. God is on his throne. And nothing has happened between, well, from the beginning, before the beginning of the world has begun till now. Nothing has happened beyond God's hands. He has everything goes through his hands. Nothing goes on without his permission. 
Heaven shouts hallelujah, and all great and small are called to praise our God. I see those great and small in this room. I see those who are small in stature, those who are big in stature, those who have much money, those who do much, and those who have very little. But all who are called by the name of the Lord, all who are called to worship him and serve him, they are called to praise the Lord. What a crescendo. What a noise. I cannot believe what this is going to sound like. Yes, the music plays. The people sing. They might sing. They shout, hallelujah. All who are his servants, whether you're a famous evangelist or a widow who prays, the leader of a nation or a child from a foster system, if you're obedient and serve where you're called to, it is the Lord who knows and remembers your deeds. Our God is worthy of all praise. Hallelujah. We've heard heaven's praise for God's victory over Babylon. Now there will be praise for the Lamb's upcoming marriage. Hmm. Because of what just occurred in chapters 17 and 18, which is Babylon destroyed, and what will soon take place in verses 11 through 20, excuse me, 11 through chapter 20, verse 6, what will happen in the past, what will happen now, and what will happen in the future, God's will, people will say hallelujah for a fourth time. He alone is the source of all these blessings, past, present, and future. Let's look at our passage again, beginning at verse 6. And remember, there are no whispers here. There are no whispers their exaltation. Think loud. Think a Marshall stack, for those of you folks who know the old Larry, you know what I'm talking about, right? All right, so it is happening. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. It's time. He reigns. Now, I want you to think of this. When we went through, when we think back to the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, when he taught his disciples to prayer, pray, he said this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, again, I say the time is now. Remember, we've had a usurper on the earth. He has fought against everything that Christ has done. Yes, Christ is exercising his will in heaven, but until now, evil has been a part of the scene. Yes, Jesus won the war at Calvary, at Calvary. Calvary, Calvary. By dying and rising again, he won the war. But there's still a battle that is taking place, amen? We still fight a fight. But now he's coming back to reign on the earth. Can I hear an amen for that? Thank you. Thank you. And a major feature 
of the Lamb's reign on earth is his marriage to his bride. Last time I checked, that's us. Those who have come before us, those who have died in the Lord, and those who will still die in the Lord, that's us, the bride of Christ. The major feature is marriage to his bride, the intimate relationship with his people. It's a picture. It's a symbol. Verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In Genesis 2, it was God who created the institution of marriage. From the rib, from the side of Adam, God did the first surgery. He took a rib out, and he formed a woman from that rib. Why the rib? Because those two were to walk side by side, rib to rib, together through life. Fast forward to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Where did he choose to perform his first miracle? At a wedding. At Cana in Galilee. What did he do? He turned water into wine. Coincidence? I don't think so. What else does the Bible say about marriage? In Matthew 19, it's said to be, it's monogamous. It's meant to be for one couple. It's meant to be permanent. What God also used marriage for was a, was a picture, a symbol of what his relationship would be like with his people. In Hosea, we often look at Hosea as the negative part of, of, of marriage when a woman was unfaithful to her husband. But the Lord declares this to Israel. He said, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Intimately know the Lord side by side, not from a distance. But Israel, more often than not, forsook her husband. The northern kingdom and Assyria, Assyria came in and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. She was an unfaithful wife. Judah, she was an unfaithful wife to Yahweh. She was exiled to Babylon. And after 70 years, she was brought back into the, into the land. After the nation's leaders rejected Christ, Remember, they chose. They did not want anything to do with Jesus. They said, no. Seventy years later, the Roman Empire came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Not one stone was left upon another. They were sent, they were sent scattered. They were scattered throughout the world. Until what? In 1948... God brings the nation of Israel back to the land of Palestine. How does that happen? Well, the same way that 
God redeems a nation out of a place where it's been for 430 years in Egypt. The Lord keeps his promises. Jesus used wedding illustrations repeatedly, and then he taught about his relationship with those who would put their trust in him and follow him. Again, always, my bride, my bride, my bride, We're talking about virgins coming to him in the wedding. John the Baptist was the first to speak of Christ as being a bridegroom. In 2 Corinthians 11 and Romans 7, they refer to Christ as the bridegroom. Then what exactly is this wedding about? And who's part of it? I'm glad you asked that question, even though you didn't say it out loud. It's a picture of a spiritual reality. It is a symbol of a great truth. Now, historians tell us this. There were different marriage customs throughout the ancient Near East, but in the majority of the time, and especially during Jesus' day, Usually, there were three major aspects of a completed marriage. The first one, the marriage contract was negotiated and agreed upon by the parents when the future spouses were still children. Boy, how would you like that? Having your parents set you up? The payment of a suitable dowry was often the feature of the contract. And when agreed upon, the contract meant that the couple was legally married. Legally married. People, Judy, people the age of your granddaughter and your grandson, they're legally married, or they have, they have not consummated, they have not taken the step, but they are legally married. Only divorce could separate them. The second aspect, when the couple had reached a suitable age, the second step of the wedding took place. And this was a ceremony in which the bridegroom, accompanied by his groomsman, would go to the bride's house to escort her to his house. She didn't know he was coming. Can you, yeah, I know. Connie goes, ah, oh, could you imagine? This is the background of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. The third aspect, when the bridegroom would bring home his bridegroom to his home, to the marriage supper, in which the guests were invited, this would take place, just like the wedding at Cana, which I described earlier. And after that, the consummation of marriage would take place, and then life. Can you begin to connect the dots? Think with me here. Think about the Christian promises that we have. The wedding focuses on the bridegroom. It's all about the bridegroom. The wedding contract is finalized at the time the church is redeemed. When was this contract finalized? When Christ paid the price on the cross. The price was agreed upon. The price, Christ shed blood. Every true Christian is joined to Christ in legal marriage. It's monogamous, and it's forever. When Christ comes for his church at the rapture, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the second 
phase of the wedding is fulfilled. Where the bridegroom goes and receives his bride. This is a different time. This passage that we speak about today, Revelation 19, this is a different, this is the second coming. But Christ in Thessalonians comes in the air. He doesn't set his feet down. Those who are still alive are caught up together to ever, forever to be with the Lord. Those who are asleep, those who have died, they beat us to him. The third phase then follows the wedding feast. Now, I'll be honest here. The scriptures aren't clear when this feast takes place. Does it take place during the fright before the tribulation is concluded? I don't think so. I believe it probably takes place during the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, sometime during that. It's going to be a long feast. I don't know. Again, it's a picture. It's a word picture of us with the Lord. Here, though, is it significant to note that the bride is already the wife of the Lamb. We're already married to Christ. For the groom has already come for his bride prior to his second coming that will be described shortly. So the wedding feast, not the wedding, is being announced here. And the third phase is about to take place. Now hear me. Since we, the church, will have been changed in a twinkling of an eye, no longer in bodies stained by sin, and I say amen to that, Nobody, no longer in pain, no longer fighting sin because we will be with him, we'll be sinless, we'll be seeing him face to face. We have been clothed also by Christ's righteousness. Listen to this passage then in a new light. You probably have heard this passage at many, many weddings. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's God's sovereignty on display. And what a time to look forward to. Are you ready? Are you ready? But we have a responsibility too. Until the day you die, or until we're taken up to be with the Lord in the air, we are being sanctified here on earth. And through God's Spirit, we remove sin from, us, from ourselves. We step away from a sinful lifestyle. We're being sanctified. We are being made more like Christ. We are being made more like the bridegroom. We're being conformed into his image. Again, from Ephesians, we can only accomplish this through his spirit, but when Paul wrote this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's up to you. That's up to me. As one man has said, every good work is another stitch in the making of our wedding dress. Are you working on that piece of clothing? You could be asking me, well, what about the Old Testament saints? What about those who lived and died during the tribulation? What about the remnant of Jewish believers who were hiding out in the wilderness? They are a part of the people of God, but they're not the bride. What about those who have been martyred in the great tribulation after the church has been taken to heaven? How about the believers? Again, the Jewish remnant. When the clock strikes 12, what's going to happen to them? Well, the Lord promised Daniel this. At the same time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is in charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. That sounds familiar. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And in Revelation 20, which we'll study next week, God willing, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of his Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. People of God, you're invited, no matter from the Old Testament or in the future. We'll continue in verse 9. There is where we have the fourth beatitude of Revelation. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of of God. Blessed, whether you're the bride or a bridegroom that's helping out, or the, I don't care. If you're there, you're blessed, and you're with the Lord. During the millennium, there will be a distinction. Israel will have her promises, including the land promises, met. They will finally have the entire promised land with Christ reigning from Jerusalem. The church will have her promises fulfilled too. All will live in a renewed earth with Christ ruling from his throne in Jerusalem. And then after a thousand years, he will hand the kingdom over to his father. 
And then the eternal state begins. It's not playing harps on a cloud, men and women. It's ruling and living on the earth, a perfectly renewed earth, until a brand new one is created for us. Understand everyone is invited and everyone will be blessed. All invited. Well, John is a lot like us. He messed up. Can you believe that? In, in the scriptures, it says right here, he messed up. He's so overcome with what he has seen and what he's been told. He, he's, I don't know, this is overload. It's old man overload. And he falls straight on the feet, on, his gr on the ground. And he says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. John, what are you doing? And he said to me, you must not do that. I don't think that the angel, you shall not do that. He's not saying, what are you, what are you doing? I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You don't worship someone who isn't God. Which brings me to this little idea. Did Jesus ever say when people worshiped him, did he tell them? He accepted it when they worshiped him on the boat after he'd calmed the storm. When they worshiped him on the, on, at the tomb, when the ladies, they grabbed him, he said, don't grab a hold of me yet. He didn't say, don't worship me. He said, don't grab a hold of me yet. I'm still not, I'm not with my father yet. Prophecy should always be directed and focused on Jesus not about what is going to happen. And now the focus shifts from earth to heaven and then back again. Yeah, here we go. We've seen this figure before. He was pictured first for us as the lamb standing as though it had been slain. And now the appearance of the messianic warrior and judge. Who is this? Who is this? Isaiah wrote about him. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. But the righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The prophet Daniel saw him. Daniel wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which should never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He is the Davidic king. He is the son of David. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the warrior who comes to the earth to establish in full the victory that he has already had at the cross. John looks and sees heaven open, rolled up like a scroll, as it were. MacArthur is helpful here when he writes, heaven opens not to let John in, but to let Jesus out. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, a white horse, a symbol of victory. Unlike the other rider that we saw on a white horse in chapter 6, verse 2, who came out conquering and to conquer, now the true king of kings is going to triumph over those who blasphemously assume control over the world. Contrast Jesus' first advent. When he was presented to Israel, he came lowly, meek, riding on a donkey. It was prophesied. Contrast this appearance when he was a baby born in Bethlehem. And now this. The one sitting on the white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is not a game. He makes war. War. In his first advent, he came in mercy, and he still offers mercy to those who will turn. But now judgment. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head, and on his head are many diadems. His eyes, the fire, he sees through anything. He can burn through any false, anything false. And the diadems, each one, picturing sovereignty, picturing rule over kingdoms. He's the king over all nations. The first time he was a servant. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. This is a picture of, I'm not going to tell you my name. Joshua, when he met the angel of the Lord, When he asked, what's your name? (laughs) Don't worry about it. This is Jesus saying the same thing. He answers to no one except his father. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The first time on earth, he shed his blood. But this time, now his robe is a garment baptized in the blood of those who oppose him. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. By his Word, he created the universe. And now with his Word, he will claim what is rightfully his. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
Church, what kind of clothes are we said to have? Fine linen, washed in the blood of the lamb. I, for one, don't like horses, but I think I will that day. Angels also have these kind of garments. The armies of heaven follow him. Notice they're not leading with him. They're not right next to him. They follow him because he is the one who does the judging. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Simply by declaring it, it is so. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is our Jesus. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Does he reign in your life? Are you bowing the knee now? Because everyone will bow the knee eventually. By writing this about Jesus, do you know that John had put himself into imminent danger? Because the Roman emperor at that time had claimed to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But I can't imagine John being too much impressed with Domitian after knowing who he walked with for three years on the earth, after seeing him risen again, and after seeing who he is now in his full glory. Bring it on. And in a reversal of fortune, instead of being blessed by attending a marriage supper, the invitation to God's victory supper, supper excuse me, is offered in anticipation of the overwhelming defeat of all the forces gathered at Armageddon who resist his coming. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. <laughs> Dropping all the differences that all the nations have, yeah, I'll fight with you. Yeah, I'll fight with you. Yes, I'll fight with you. I'll, I'll fight against that king of kings. He can't hold a candle to us. Well, the truth is, and it's wise to remember, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
good versus evil, the ultimate showdown, and it's not even close. We finish chapter 19 with the defeat of God's earthly enemies. It's been described this way as a swift and complete ruin. It's not even a contest. You know, we know the Lord is a perfect judge, right? We've said so, we've, been, we've heard it said, we've seen it in the scriptures. You know why? Because of what he does right here. Satan's masterpieces, the ones who Satan chose to fool the nations, to rule the nations, to ultimately serve, serve and worship him, the one who called the whole world to worship him, they're the first ones to be eternally judged. Verse 20, and the beast was captured. Now notice you can't throw a kingdom into the lake of fire. The beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who is in the presence in its presence, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest, the rest of the army that was with them, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." The lake of fire, the place that was designed and created to house the devil and his angels, receives its first tenant or tenants. Two men, two men, the beast and the false prophet, and the rest of the army, they were killed by the, by the word, just by the word who the one spoke, the one who created the universe. He now decimates the army. That army will wait for a thousand years and then end up in the same dreadful place where all those who choose to reject God will remain forever. Again, not a popular message to bring, but a true message. You have heaven and you have hell. Mercy, judgment. We have Jesus who came the first time offering mercy and forgiveness. And by the second time when people have refused the mercy and the forgiveness, he gives them what they desire. Church, this prophecy is true. It's a passage that gives us much hope because we see and read who wins. Will you be victorious with him? Will you be riding on one of those horses, being part of the conqueror's train, 
or will you await certain judgment? The choice is yours. A 19th century writer penned these words, and I finish here. Earth, what sorrows lie before thee? Unlike it in the shadows past, the sharpest throes that ever tore thee, though the briefest and the last. I see the shadows of the sunset. I see the dread avenger's form. I see the Armageddon's onset. But I shall be above the storm. There comes the morning and the sighing. There comes the heart's tears heavy fall. The thousand agonies of dying. But I shall be above them all. Lord God, I pray that we will all be there with you. If there are any here within the sound of my voice who have yet not bowed the knee to you, May we accept you. May we accept your offer of forgiveness and life when we turn to you. When we trust you, when we trust that Jesus, you were enough, that you died to pay, to redeem us. And Lord God, you know that we are not perfect, but you do not call us to be. You call us to come to you. And you will clothe us in righteousness and give us life. May we turn to you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.